Genesis chapter 3. This morning, Genesis chapter 3. Super easy to find. It's the first book in the Bible. Genesis chapter 3, um, verses 7 through 13. We'll be reading there in a moment. Uh, so there's a story told of a manager of a minor league baseball team who was so disgusted with his center fielder's performance that he ordered him to the dugout and assumed the position himself. The first ball that came to center field took a bad hop and hit the manager in the mouth. The second one was a high fly ball, which he lost in the glare of the sun until it bounced off his forehead. The third was a hard hit line drive that he charged with outstretched arms. Unfortunately, it flew between his hands and smacked him in the eye. Furious, he ran back to the dugout, grabbed the center fielder by his uniform, and shouted, You idiot! You've got center field so messed up that I can't do a thing with it. Think about that. He's blaming the old center fielder for his mistakes. And in our lives, we can look at others and we can find faults. We can look around and we can pass off the blame. But personal growth as an individual, and more importantly, forgiveness and healing through Jesus Christ, is found through taking personal responsibility for our own actions, confessing our sins, and repenting of them. And then is when we find redemption through the supernatural grace of God. So let's look at our text uh, this morning, Genesis chapter 3, verses 7 through 13, uh, which says, Then the eye, this is after Adam and Eve took of the fruit and ate of it, they committed the first sin, uh, and they realized that they had messed up. Uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 7 says, And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And, they, and then they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. So this morning I want to preach a sermon I've entitled The Blame Game. Let's pray. Father God, help us this morning, God. Speak to us, God, by the power of your Spirit, Lord, that we would hear directly from you, God. Not by not my words, God, or what I have to say, God, but by your Spirit, Lord. Uh, tear down the, the walls of our hearts and our minds, God, and speak directly to us in Jesus' name. Amen. So first I want to speak about the issue of the blame game. We see in our text, this is... What they did, they didn't just simply say, yes, God, I confess and I'm sorry. He, he says, Adam says, the woman you gave me. He blames woman. And he, if you think about it, he blames a little bit of God. The woman you gave me 
gave me the fruit and I ate it. And then the woman defends herself by saying, well, the serpent tricked me, deceived me, and then I ate. Our human tendency, ever since the very first sin of mankind, is to blame, make excuses when it comes time to fess up for what we've done. Well, yeah, I did it, but it wasn't all my fault. Right? Kids, kids are great at this. <laughs> and a lot of adults are pretty good at it, too. That's why I'm preaching this to adults as well. This is not a children's church message. Yeah, I may have done that, but so-and-so or such-and-such. We love to make excuses. But Romans chapter 2, verse 1 says, Therefore you have no excuse. That's literally what it says. Romans chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you... The judge practice the very same thing. Think about this. Adam, the woman made me do it. Eve, the snake made me do it. Scripture says, but you did it. And now you have condemned yourself further by pointing fingers to try to get yourself out of your own mess. So-and-so made me do it, but the Bible says, yeah, but you did it. And by pointing fingers at them, you're condemning them for what you have also done. Now, there are times where you might be saying, well, I did this in response to somebody else's sin that I don't do, and that makes it okay. But Scripture tells us that ultimately sin is enough. Romans 3.23, very popular and well-known verse, for we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Simply put, blaming others for our sin, even if they did tempt us to do it, does not purify us. It does not justify us. It does not cleanse us. Wayne W. Dyer says this, all, the, uh, all blame is a waste of time. No matter how much fault you find with another, and regardless of how much you blame him, it will not change you. The only person, I'm sorry, the only thing blame does is keep the focus off you when you are looking for external reasons to explain your unhappiness or frustration. You may succeed in making another feel guilty of something by blaming them, but you won't succeed in changing whatever it is about you that is making you unhappy. Ultimately, church, condemning others does not remove our own condemnation. Condemning others leaves us still in our own condemnation. But beyond that, when we point fingers at others, we sinned because of so-and-so or such-and-such. Blaming others ultimately is empowering others over us while weakening ourselves. When we try to pass the blame, when we play the blame game, we are claiming that others have control over us. That's ultimately what we're saying. But usually, when we, when we point fingers, when we say so-and-so made me do it, their actions or this situation or circumstances in life made me act that way, so it's not my fault. It's usually done out of pride, right? I'm a great person, and I don't mess up unless X, Y, and Z, right? I, it's not something I would do, but I was 
forced to do it. Right? We say these things out of pride. I'm pretty good, but circumstances led me to do this. But if we're being honest, when we say stuff like that and you get down to the base of the issue, we're making ourselves out to be weak. We, we say it out of pride, but it actually truly reveals weakness as if someone or something else has control over us. Like as if we're a puppet to, to, to someone or a puppet to our circumstances. But Romans chapter 12 verse 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, and what is good and acceptable and perfect. Do not be conformed. When we give in to temptation that we get from people or that we get straight from hell and we'll get both, we are allowing them to conform us to the world. When the world comes and tempts us and we give in to it, we are conforming ourselves to what the world wants us to do. So if then we play the blame game, we point the fingers, we are professing that that person or that situation or that emotion or that whatever it is has control over us. I was all good, but then blank made me do it. And by blaming others, we are empowering other people over our lives and we are professing our weakness. But beyond that, we're also reducing God and his power in our lives. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 tells us, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So firstly, this verse tells us, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. You know, sometimes we like to think that our struggles are exclusive to us. We like to think that the things we're facing, the stuff we're going through, we've got a patent on it, and it's only our issue. Exclusive. My struggles are exclusive, one of one. But scriptures tell us, what you're going through, it ain't new. Maybe it's new to you. Maybe you think you don't know other people who are going through it. But scriptures tell us no temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes, there is nothing new under the sun. No, not one thing. And that was thousands of years ago. It's all been worn out for a long time. You see, we can compare ourselves to others all day if we want. But the Word of God says that there is a way through whatever we face. Sometimes we justify our sin because, because my issues are one of one. I'm exclusive. You guys wouldn't understand my struggle, so it makes my sin acceptable. But secondly, this verse tells us that God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. So when we say things like, so-and-so made me do it, or my situations forced my hand, 
We are elevating that person or situation to Lord over our life before God. We are saying that person or that situation has more control over my life than God does. Think about that. But listen, if we say we had no choice but to sin, we are saying God was not powerful enough to get us through it. But there's a crucial factor here that's important to point out is that living within God's will is key. We face temptation and we face life and we face trials in life, in or out of God's will. But if we live outside of God's will, we face these things on our own. God, why aren't you providing a way for me through this temptation? And God's like, well, I'm over here and you're over there. My will for you is over here and you're out there. God provides a way for those who are seeking his ways. Many times, Christians today, they want to run around and do what they want to do. They want to live their own will, their own way. And then as soon as trouble comes, they're like, God, why aren't you helping me? God will provide a way through temptation if we are seeking his way through temptation. You see, Paul is writing this text to the Corinthian church to a body of people who are seeking God's will. It tells us that God provides a way. But if we aren't walking in His way, there is no way. But when we give in, and we will, unfortunately, at times, we struggle, we falter, we make mistakes... Pointing fingers, making excuses, playing the blame game. Blaming other people, blaming our circumstances will ultimately, as scriptures tell us, only bring greater condemnation on us. So we must take responsibility. We must confess before God of our sins and repent of our sins. Listen, Church, when you pray and confess your sins to God, and I hope you do, I hope you don't say, God, please forgive me for such and such, but so-and-so does this. Listen, if I, if I could pray for the forgiveness of other people's sins, there'd be a lot more saved people in this world. We must take responsibility for our sins before God and confess before God and repent of our sins. Circumstances in life until the day we die will tempt us to sin. But when we take responsibility before God, there is healing and redemption found through confession and repentance. You see, in our text, we see Adam and Eve, they play the blame game. <laughs> oh God, that woman you gave me made me do it. The woman goes, well, but the snake made me do it. <laughs> and the snake's like, ha! <laughs> Got both y'all. <laughs> and you're blaming me for your own choices. Sometimes we give the devil too much credit. The devil made me do it. Well, the devil might have gave you the idea, but he didn't move your arms. He didn't move your legs. He didn't open your mouth. So-and-so made me this and this made me. No. 
We have free will. We make our choices. Ultimately, Adam and Eve, they play the blame game, but they took their punishment, even though they tried to pass the blame, and God was able to deal with them. You read throughout the, the Bible, God continues to, to work in Adam and Eve's lives. He continues to speak to them. But consider Cain, Adam and Eve's son. The Bible tells us that uh, Abel, Cain's brother, brings forth an offering and God accepted the offering. And then Cain brings forth an offering and God rejects the offering. And this doesn't make Cain very happy. And, and we don't know much about the story, but what we do know is that God's trying to deal with Cain to bring him to a better place. We see in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, God is speaking to Cain, and he says, If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. See, we don't, we don't know much about this story. What did Cain do? And, and there's a lot, of, you can, we can get into all the theological discussions as to why we think God had regard for Abel's but not for Cain's and this, that, and the other thing. But ultimately, what Cain did or wasn't doing isn't clear, but God's instructions couldn't be more clear. If you do well, will you not be accepted? Cain, you have sinned, you've fallen, you've messed up, you, you, you've really blown it. But you know this, Cain, if you do well. In other words, if you repent. That's what doing well is, right? There's nothing good about us. That's what the Bible says. No one is righteous, no, not one. But when we look our sin in the face and say, uh-uh, I ain't, I ain't trying to go down that road. If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you repent, will you not be redeemed? But if you don't, what does he say? Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. The blame game, pointing fingers, not owning up to our part of our mistakes, will only condemn us. And again, we don't know all the details, right? But the story goes on, and as we know, Cain... He didn't take God's advice. The very next verse, he murders his brother. That can only make me think that Cain's issues, whatever they were, he was blaming his brother for them. He was blaming Abel. Well, God would like me a little bit more if Abel didn't make me act this way. If Abel didn't tempt me to do this. Think about that. He murders his brother. But God says, you need to deal with yourself, Cain. And, and in the church, we can do the same thing, right? Yeah, we, listen, we're a family, right? We're, this church family, it's a beautiful thing. But every now and then, we're a family, right? There's some issues. There's some disagreements. There's some being rubbed the wrong way. But Cain allowed his sin to get the best of him. It was crouching at the door. God gave him the warning. He said, listen, brother, you got to forget about Abel. You need to worry about you.
I can only imagine somewhere the issues that Cain was experiencing, he was blaming his brother. And he murdered him. Now, in more of a metaphorical way, if we play this blame game with people close to us, people we love and care about, whether it be in our church or be in our family, eventually we murder them. I'm not talking about real-life murder, although I'm sure that does happen. Real-life murder is a real thing. I don't suspect that out of any of you. But I'm talking metaphorical. I'm talking murdering a relationship. I'm talking damaging, burning bridges. I'm talking hurting other people. But God tells Cain, and to this very day he tells us, repent, own up to your side of things. And you know what? This is after the fall of man. Abel, he was probably sinning too. Abel, he might have been tempting his brother to do dumb stuff. But at the end of the day, Abel was apparently repentant. Abel was seeking after God. And this is the reality, is that no matter how hard we try to be perfect, sometimes we will be the stumbling block for other people. And sometimes people we love and care about will be the stumbling block for us. But ultimately, when we commit that sin, when we, when we make that choice, when we say the words, when we do the action, God says it's not about who put the stumbling block before you. It's about that you stumbled and we confess it to God. See, many times in life, real life circumstances, we are afraid to admit our mistakes because it might result in punishment, right? <laughs> you get pulled over by the cop and the cop's like, sir, do you know why I pulled you over today? You were going 15 over and you knew it. And you go, no, sir, I have no idea. <laughs> right? Because maybe if we act like we have no clue what happened, we might get out of it. It's interesting in our text, we see God. Adam, Eve, where are you at? Like he didn't know. God is all-knowing. He knew exactly where they were. Adam, how did you know you were naked? Did you eat of the tree I told you not to eat? Like he didn't know. God knows there's nothing to hide. But he's not going to jump out of the bushes and point his finger at you. He wants confession. He wants you to admit. And in the real world, the cop pulls you over and says, Yeah, dude, I was going 15 over. I didn't use my signal three blocks back. And my tabs are expired. The cop would be like, Well, thank you. <laughs> Here's your ticket. But not God. Our God is so gracious. Because confession and repentance is always, listen to me, always, did you catch that? Always, not sometimes, always met with forgiveness, with healing, with redemption by our gracious and loving God. Did you write that down? Always. In the world, you can confess, you can be open and honest about your mistakes, and you will face condemnation. You'll also face people that go, you know what, that's pretty cool that you admitted all that. I forgive you. <laughs> it's hit and miss in the world. But with God, that's an always. You can write that in all caps and underline it. But don't get confused. Listen to me, don't get confused. Our choices have repercussions in life. 
God will forgive us. He will redeem us. But sometimes we make choices that have lasting effects. I'm not talking about that. Although God can and has reversed those at times as well, as well, that's to his discretion. I've seen him, listen, I've seen him do miraculous things and remove things from people's lives that I'm sitting there as like a human being like, dang, God really is gracious because they deserve that. <laughs> and other times he lets some things, he lets us go through some things. That's his sovereignty. But I'm talking about the spiritual implications, the spiritual realities. God is always gracious. James chapter 5, verses 13 through 16 says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, verse 16, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. The outline of this, pray, confess, equals healing, being raised up, being forgiven. Life is life. Situations will happen. People will happen, and people will be people. But at the end of our lives, we are not held responsible for what people did to us. But we are held responsible for what we did. And owning up and confessing before God is the only way to find healing and forgiveness for our sins and healing for our mind, spirit, and body. We are held accountable for our own actions and choices. Isaiah 53 verses 5 through 6. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. In verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 6 says, We all have gone astray. There's no exceptions. There's no mistranslations. There's no misunderstanding. We all have gone our own way. In other words, not the way of God. Sinned, messed up. Yet there is a promise in verse 5 that we can find forgiveness for our transgressions, that we can find peace in the midst of chaos, that we can find healing from our wounds. How? By confession. By owning up to who we are and who Christ is. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 11. says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in, in your heart 
that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. When you confess that Christ is Lord, you are admitting that you are not. That's many people's issue, right? It's one thing to say, oh, Jesus died for my sins. It's another thing to make him Lord over your life. When you confess that Christ is Lord over your life, you are admitting that you are not. When you look to Christ as the perfect Holy One, you are admitting that you are not. When you believe in Christ with all your life and all that you are, you stop trusting in you and you begin trusting in Him. And when we do this, we experience grace and forgiveness supernaturally. We experience more peace than we ever could have experienced, trying to convince ourselves that our sins are someone else's fault or due to the circumstances of our lives. Because we are cleansed and set free when we confess And that is when God's grace can be poured out upon us. That is when God can move in our lives. Genesis chapter 3 verse 21, a few verses after our text, I close with this. An interesting verse which says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. You know, many times this verse is overlooked when we read this story. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Adam and Eve blew it. It's like, you know the the joke, you had one job. God's like, there was one rule. (laughs) You had one rule and you blew it. And our text tells us that in their shame, in the shame of their sin, what did they do? They made clothes for themselves out of fig leaves. I don't know about you, but that does not sound comfortable. Clothes made out of leaves. Sounds itchy. But think about this. In their fallen state, messed up, sinned, The grace of God prevails to show them mercy, and God clothes them. He doesn't tell them, hey guys, listen, here's an idea. Make some out of animal skins. It says the Lord God made for Adam and Eve garments of skin and clothed them. The grace of God is unfathomable. That as they're sitting there in their fallen state, ashamed of their nakedness, they make these terrible clothes, right? Itchy leaves. 
And the grace of God says, I have forgiven you, and now I'm helping you recover. He doesn't point his finger at them and say, you guys are ashamed to be naked because of your own stupid choices. You get to deal with fig leaves. No, the grace of God shines from Genesis all the way to Revelation, all the way to 2023, all the way until the second coming of Christ. And God will cover us in his grace and in his mercy. He will cover our sins. He cleanses us from our sins. And because of his grace, despite their sins, their confession brought forgiveness. And his covering brought them protection. His covering brought them peace. His covering brought them redemption. And most importantly, brought them a second chance. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning.